Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Getting It Out podcast. That was H2O with Family Tree. 
That's from their debut record, self-titled record, on Blackout Records. Uh, that was the first H2O song that I ever heard back on the Punkorama Volume 2.1 compilation that I got in the 90s with my first pair of skate shoes. They were Simon Woodstock Vans skate shoes. They were like all black. Murdered out, they would have called them today. And I don't know what made them appeal to me. I think it was that I saw. I thought Simon Woodstock was a cool skater based on nothing. Anyway, I got the summer before seventh grade with my Tom Penny Magic Mushroom Flip Skateboards, Spitfire Wheels, Venture Trucks, Duffy Risers. Does that sound right? A Shorty's Hardware, probably. Definitely the plain black grip tape. I don't know who was paying for that uh, good grip tape. Why were you doing that? It was grip tape. Anyway. That was my first ever H2O song that I was introduced to. I just said that, but I'm telling you again, it was off of that self-titled record. already told you that, but you need to know again. And if you didn't know, that came out on Blackout Records. Recently, it's been reissued from Bridge Nine, but Blackout is where it came from to begin with, and that's the subject of this episode. I'm talking with Bill Wilson of Blackout Records. They've got some cool-ass reissues coming up. Uh, about to drop a lot of sheer terror business, but you'll you'll hear all that as we discuss it in this interview. But first, you know, we got to go to New Jersey and get some of that fresh, fresh hot zone. It's time to panic, sound the alarm, at least that's how I feel. We're here at the end of July. Summer is nearing its end. One month left, you might say one and a half. If you say more, you're lying, you're wrong. I don't know if you know how it works, but the world revolves around the northeastern portion of the United States, and that's when summer's over for us. Kids going back to school, before or after Labor Day, let's just say around Labor Day. Depends what city you live on, and if your shitty city doesn't have air conditioning in its schools, you don't go back until after Labor Day. Why? Because it's a little cooler then, and so you can get out of school before the shit really hits uh, in summer. You still gotta do it uh, while it's a little bit hot out, and then when you get to the end of the following school year, the, the, the upcoming school year, uh, you'll be getting out early every half day anyway because your air conditioning sucks. Speaking from personal experience, okay, that's it. Let's not go any further into that. Let's just talk about using the sauna at the gym. I know that's why you came here. I recently got back into using the sauna at the gym. I just came from there literally minutes ago, within the half hour. And uh, it's it reminded me of a lot of different people's approach to using to using the sauna at the gym. We all have uh, our different uh, methods. Mine are correct, everyone else's are wrong. Uh, You should, well, no, all right, so let's see. I don't do what I think is correct because it feels like it's too too far of a reach from what everybody else is doing because you got teenagers in there uh, taking pictures of themselves like this afternoon, uh, fully clothed, 
with shoes on and everything, this is the incorrect way to do it. One of the incorrect ways to do it. The other incorrect way to do it is the old guy way to do it. The opposite spectrum, just walk in butt ass naked, also incorrect. What I think is the correct way is actually closer to the old man method and just towel around the waist, maybe some shower shoes on. That's it. And then you sit there quietly. And maybe if you want to have some light conversation, that's fine. But what you don't do is uh, have a phone conversation. Nobody wants to do that. Don't bring a drink in there. Be a pussy like that. Get your drink out of here. I went to sauna once and a guy brought a cup of ice in with him. And he kept uh, eating ice while he was in there. He's like, what are you doing? I don't think that's, I don't think you really get what this this is, man. Get out of here. This is for serious business only. Speaking of, I used to order things and put Serious Business Incorporated as my address. Nobody ever thought that was funny except for me. I still think it's funny. I think I'm going to get back to it. Uh, hey, by the way, if you want to mail me something, my address is everywhere. You can find it. I'll give it to you. Send me something. What? I don't know. Whatever. I've got to do more videos where I open stuff that I get in the mail. I, I just realized I'm way behind on a uh, on a package that I had from Black House Records, which was, I think, last month's. Uh, record label spotlight. Black House Records got Roselle sent me an awesome package. I did record myself opening it and I thought I posted it, but it doesn't exist on the internet anyway. So I got to try that again. You can see that very soon. I picked up some cool records over the weekend. It was a kid-free weekend here. What does that mean? It means going to a distillery, buying some bottles, going to a record store, buying some records, going to the beer store, buying some beer. That's it. And then hanging out on the couch and listening to those records. I picked up the big Smashing Pumpkins Melancholy uh, box set. That one's been on the want list in this house for a long time. Finally splurge, picked that up. Uh, my wife got the last Radiohead record that she wanted, Amnesiac. And I, the only thing I got for myself was the Rival Schools United by Fate reissue on Run for Cover Records. There was so much stuff in this record store, A Day in the Life in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I could honestly shop and buy out the ass all day long, but I tried to limit myself. You know what I saw a lot of while I was in there? I saw a lot of what we're going to be talking about on this episode of the podcast, a lot of the Black Out Records reissues, The Outburst, The Killing Time, and I saw an old copy of the Crawl Pappy self-titled record, which we also talk about a little bit. Anyway, this episode is a conversation with Bill Wilson of Blackout Records. And we'll get to that here in a second. But first, you know how this works. I got to play you a song. And how about we pick one from the first topic we really hit. This is Outburst with The Hard Way. Take no more 
you tell me how and why blackout records starts in i think 1988 yeah yeah it was 88 and the first record came out in 89 and you know as we were saying before recording started you know a lot of indie labels um are born out of friendship and the love for music and um I was fortunate enough to grow up in Yonkers, New York, a suburb of New York City. And my friends um, started a couple of bands that were growing in popularity. So one of my best friends on the planet or my my best friend on the planet is a is the founding member of Breakdown and Killing Time, uh, Carl, the guitar player, who's also the principal songwriter. And I've now known him for over 50 years um, our parents were friends. We used to go on vacation together. We went to a lot of the same schools. Um, so I've known him truly my entire life, and he's more of a sibling than he is a a friend. And he learned how to play guitar um, and then connected with local people um, at the local record store. And he kind of found his way to founding these bands, um, you know, and break down, you know, the way that they wrote their songs really hit a chord in the scene at that particular time. It was, you know, that was, you know, they were like the perfect blend of like metal um, and sort of hardcore aggro uh, in that way. And, um, you know, a couple other bands from that scene. And we had gotten into hardcore probably around, I would say late 85, 19, early 86. And we started going to shows down at CBGB's. Um, and, you know, we had some friends in the scene as well. And so by the time that both he and Drago from from Breakdown, the drummer and Breakdown and Roy Deal were kind of cajoling me into starting a label. Um, you know, it just kind of magically happened. And we were friends with this guy named Jim Gibson. 
um, who was another guy who was at the local record store as well. He was, you know, the, the, the big motorhead fan at the local record store. And he liked a lot of crazy, noisy, alternative stuff. And he wanted to do a label too. So we kind of pooled resources and put together where the wild things are. And again, it was born out of friendship between myself and Jim and really everybody in Jim, the friendship between me and the bands. Um, and magically it, it was very successful. It was kind of like the torchbearer for the scene for a certain amount of time. And we had no idea and no expectations for what it was going to be. Yeah, that's a certainly a hardcore classic compilation, a classic hardcore compilation, specifically New York hardcore. Um, I, I don't come along until nearly 2000. So like 15 years, you know, like almost 15 years later. And it still was a big deal back then. Uh, still is still now. I was just actually I was just looking at the copy that I have on my shelf. And interestingly, I noticed I have a Noiseville copy, which I think is what Jim broke off to do, right? Yeah. And we would do some odd shit. Like he'd be like, hey, have you done a vinyl pressing in a while? I'm like, no. He's like, can I do one? I'm like, yeah, sure. (laughs) That's that's super cool. It's super cool to hear. And not to get us way off track already, but it's super cool to hear that that like there's a, that you guys are still cool that, you know, because typically in a situation like that, it's just beef. I mean, you know, with respect to Jim, like he really loves some like avant-garde noisy stuff. Like he was into, you know, throbbing grizzle. He was into like really, you know, esoteric kind of stuff. And the bands he wanted to sign were not, I would say commercial, but I understood hardcore, right? Yeah. I didn't necessarily understand kind of the grown-up bands, quote unquote, that he was doing. Yeah. You know, the late, you know, I think all of us divided kind of like the scene at that point, which is slightly pre indie rock explosion um, into like CBGB matinee bands and CBGB's nighttime bands. Mm, yeah. And Jim liked the CBGB's nighttime bands. And I like the CBGB's <laughs> matinee bands. And I think that's kind of the way to to put that. Like, I like the more straightforward stuff that the kids were listening to. And Jim liked stuff that was really pushing kind of the envelope of, mm. you know, performance, songs, lyrics and things like that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's good. That's a that's a great way to put it, though. Good metaphor for it. But I mean, it sounds realistic too. the. But anyway, back to where the wild things are. That uh, was it. Was it always the intention? Was it the first thing you thought when you did this to start with a compilation? There was no plan. Hmm. There was no nothing. It was we wanted to do something that was like a snapshot or a yearbook of what we felt hardcore was at the time. We wanted to give our friends like Breakdown, mm-hmm. who didn't have an outlet at the time like Sheer Terror, who was kind of a pariah in the scene. Um, You know, we wanted to do a compilation that was like a snapshot. And I said this elsewhere, but we wanted things to look like and be like those compilations that we would buy to kind of get a hint of what old school New York was like. So there was a a compilation called New York Thresh. 
Um, and that had like the first wave of, of a seven bands on it. And it was put out by roar, which used to be the cassette only label. And then they did a vinyl pressing of it. Um, or another label, um, uh, started by a guy from the Bronx named Javi Savage who did one big crowd. And it was a compilation of like the psychos and the actual first ever recording of sheer terror is where I ever heard first ever heard sheer terror and ultra violence and sort of that 1984, 1985 kind of snapshot. And we, I wanted to just put out the 1988, 1989 snapshot. Right. And, you know, we, it was just a happenstance that, you know, we said, okay, the compilation's done. Um, you know, what else can we do? And then Outburst wanted to uh, put out a record. And uh, and that's really kind of what, what happened, you know? And then Uppercut wanted to put out uh, a record. And, you know, Uppercut were all friends of mine from going to school at Fordham in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carl too. And so we, uh, you know, it just kept growing organically from that and from the killing time record. And then, you know, uh, one of my favorite bands, oi bands from the time and still is, is, is the, the business. And I went out and I actually wrote a letter to link records and we actually traded. It was very unusual. We actually traded masters. Like I did a compilation of the business's greatest hits um, called the business 1979 to 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of took a snapshot of like what I felt were my favorite business songs. And they actually took the where the wild things are and pressed a pressing on link um, in the UK. Um, they never sent me a check. I never sent them a check. It was just kind of like, you know, they use whatever money on their side for their st- their stuff, and I use whatever money on my side for my stuff. It was again not particularly traditional. And if I had my druthers, I probably would have structured something a little bit more, you know, adult at the time. But I didn't know nothing. I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I just thought it was like cool, and it was the wild west, you know, for me. Were there a bunch of other record label options for New York hardcore bands at the time that you were kicking off things with blackout? Not really. Um, I mean, you had rev, but rev was Mm -hmm. like kind of the, you know, a lot of the youth crew stuff was happening with rev. Um, I was straight edge at the time, but I actually didn't like a lot of youth crew stuff. I thought it was all garbage, honestly, or a lot of it just sounded all exactly the same. Um, and a lot of the people to me were just, you know, might as well have been the lacrosse team. And it just seemed like very clicky and very kind of like elitist. And for me, that was exactly the antithesis of what was happening. And obviously you had the exception like, you know, Warzone and you had the exception of like Sick of It All who were different on Rev. But for the most part, a lot of that stuff was, you know, sort of Ray Capo and his buddies. Yeah, well, that they also had um, Rev had the way it is comps drop around. That's is that the same year? Pretty close, though, right? 
the the seven inch compilation, the together comp, which was the seven inch comp, um, had a smattering of bands on it, and that was kind of the thing that said made me say, "Oh, this is cool, but I could do better." Um, and that made me kind of start. And then the way it is kind of came out, but it had you know virtually the only I think the only overlap in bands was maybe breakdown. Is Gorilla um, Biscuits on the way it is? GB, GB2. G, Gorilla, GB also, yeah. But other well, than that, the, it, was divergent, it was a very divergent set of bands. Yeah, but that's kind of, that's that's kind of why I bring it up. Because even though that wasn't, obviously I wasn't around at that time. I was still very young. To me, it's always been like there was just two different, two different routes you could take within the hardcore. And I always favored the, the wild things. Just the grittier the heavier, the heavier side of it. And uh, yeah. And you, right. Like, I, you know, the whole like positive youth, you know, I, I am not a shiny, happy person. Right. Just from different things that have gone on in my life, which I will not enumerate here. Um, I have a very dismal view of humanity. I don't, you know, have a particularly, I'm not particularly fond of, of a lot of things. So, you know, my 18 year old angst um, really culminated in kind of finding bands that had bite to them and wasn't about PMA because I didn't see any PMA in the world. I mean, the very name for the label blackout was no light, no hope, no future. Like, you know, if you look at pictures that I used to draw because I was an illustrator back then, um, you know, literally all the pictures are about fucking alcoholism and suicide. A hundred percent. And so, like, I had this dark streak that as an adult, I kind of laugh at myself because I realized that, like, the fuck was I so mad at? Yeah. <laughs> right. But as a kid, I was when I had this pent up aggression at the world mm -hmm. um, and hardcore was catharsis for me. And how could I sit there and be like, PMA, you're my brothers, but you'll fuck me over. <laughs> so who am I kidding? Right. So that's kind of like where a lot of things came from. And a lot of the bands came from that similar kind of untrusting mentality. I'll put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that you from Yonkers was that, did I get that right? You're from Yonkers. Yeah. But, uh, would you also talk about going to school in the Bronx? You talk about just living, well, being friends with these university in the Bronx. Okay, sorry. Yeah, that was that's that's what it was. Um, but so I guess what I'm getting to is that uh, just outside the city, but you're hanging out in the city, going to shows. Uh, you start this this label. You get these bands on it that I know, like Breakdown Yonkers. Was there a uh, was there a thing you had to do to get into that New York City scene? Was there a, a gatekeeper there? Was there something that there was, was no industry, that easy? But it was about being around, hmm. right? Like you knew you were a neophyte when you went down to your first show. Like I was, you know, because you think, you know, hardcore when you like buy, you know, suicidal tendencies first record and you make your own homemade suicidal tendency shirt. 
Then you go to CBGB's for your first agnostic front matinee and your eyes get open to like, you know, you know, seeing Harley and John for the first time and walking down and seeing like all like the, you know, crust punks like sitting alongside the road, the road in the Bowery and kind of this just mass of people that, you know, it, it was very, very intimidating yet I've never felt more at home. Mm-hmm. And the it was just a question of you meet people. You just meet people on the fringes. Like the first people that my little gang of four or five, it was me, Carl, Don from Breakdown, uh, Rich, who from Breakdown, um, a couple of the dudes from Fordham and, and their girlfriends, and we would take the D train from Fordham, walk up Fordham Road, take the D train, go down every Sunday to the matinee. We would do our record shopping at, you know, on 8th Street or wherever. Then we would go to the show and we'd chill out. And then we'd go to Veselka for pierogies or Kiev, um, which was another Ukrainian restaurant for like borscht or like sauerkraut soup or some other shit. And, uh, and, you know, eventually you meet other people who are kind of on the fringes. And I remember meeting this guy named Josh Moody, who was a Jersey kid, Jersey skinhead kid. Um, my friend Sammy Crespo had been going to shows for a little while. He was, um, his brother, Jose, went to school with us at Fordham. Um, and, you know, he he was kind of like would come down with us. Um, as well. And he introduced us to a couple other people, this guy, Wes Harvey, who is an illustrator. Um, he did like the life's blood cover. He did the sheer terror guillotine t-shirt. Um, and he's a very accomplished illustrator. Now he does comic books. He does 3d renderings. He does museum works like, um, but he introduced us to these people and eventually you just start to get to know people. And then through the bands, because I was kind of the t-shirt guy and the hanger on (laughs) for breakdown as they would go meet shows, I got to meet Gavin. I got to meet Richie underdog. I got to meet Russell. I got to meet all these other people. And after the show, everybody, we just go out to like a Denny's or some shit, depending on if we were like in Albany or out of town. So it just kind of organically happens as groups of people who discover they have more in common from their misanthropy, <laughs> you know, and you kind of just kind of just it's like hardcore is like the nucleus that puts all these whirling, you know, uh, <laughs> electrons and holds them in position around like this, this center. But it's not to yeah. say that the electrons don't crash into each other periodically, right? <laughs> Often, so, yeah. <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's almost a metaphor for the pit, too, right, in some yeah. ways. But, like, yeah, man, it was uh, – so that's kind of – it just grew organically, and that's how Where the Wild Things Are recruited some of the bands. I mean, with Sheer Terror, Carl and I actually went to school with Paul Bear from Sheer Terror. His family lived in Yonkers for years, but we didn't know that Paul Bearer from Sheer Terror was Paul Poplowski from seventh grade. Really? No idea. We have no idea. He's got a distinctive voice and face. You'd be be able to point him out from anywhere. Well, but his demeanor was just so different. 
I mean, I kind of should have known, but it turns out that one of our mutual friends was like, well, the singer in Sheer Terror is Paul. Don't you remember Paul, the punk rock, the kid from whatever it is who used to bring Plasmatics records wherever he went? Wait, that's the same Paul? Because he was kind of like a jollier kid. Yeah. And he definitely, especially in like 85 to 90, he was the polar opposite of jolly. <laughs> right? You know, he grew into his acerbic wit, but like... Like him and him and his crew, which was like the nihilistic guys and things like that. Like there was, there was, there was, there was some serious vibes about those guys. Mm-hmm. And like I just remember him being like, "Did you go to Walt Whitman Junior High School?" And he was like, "What?" I was like, "Dude, we went to Whitman with you." And he, you know, he didn't necessarily soften up when we met him. But it was because I was dealing with Newman from the band. I wasn't even dealing with him when I was like doing the compilation. Mm-hmm. It was only like probably a month after I had asked him to be on the compilation that I realized it was it was Paul from seventh grade. It was crazy. Um, so that was another oddball connection that I had with these with these people, you know, with with the with the with the scene. And so that's kind of so no gatekeepers. It was yeah, just yeah. this organic sort of growth in the scene over over two years, I would say, starting in summer of 86 to like 88 when I put stuff together. And then, you know, breakdown started, put the comp together. Jim kicked in some of the money, kicked in some of his expertise. And, um, you know, more backstory for you. That's interesting because, well, for several reasons, but also because I feel like that like two year hang around period is kind of like the standard for just being being involved and embraced in a hardcore scene. You know what I mean? Like because because anybody who's been around for long enough knows that people come and go so often that sometimes you need to you need to stick it out for a while before you're really embraced and and you, you got to bring something to the table too i think you know right and, and that's what it is like either you're a participant in the scene or you're a fucking tourist yeah and that's that's the that's the whole thing and you know unless you're in a band unless you're participating in that culture of creation mm-hmm. it can get pretty boring pretty quick Right. Like just going to shows is cool, but everybody that I knew took pictures, did a zine, like, you know, wasn't just part of kind of like a party scene. You know, some people did illustrations, some people did record labels, some people played in bands, some people put on shows, some people drove the van. Mm-hmm. Right. Everybody contributed to hardcore in that way. And I don't think anybody really expected any of it to live beyond that period of time. Like it was just, we're doing this, we're doing this now. There's no legacy attached to this. It's not like we're writing a hit song. That's going to last like unchained fucking melody or something. Right. We're, we're doing music. That means right now for kids that are here right now. No one had any idea that any of this would last. 
Yeah, and and blackout specifically, it went pretty pretty uh un uninterrupted for what 20 years? Yeah, we so it's so really honestly, we started in 89. We consistently, although not as much as I would have liked, released stuff all through um you know uh the 90s. Um, and I would say 14 years is really our kind of, was a kind of our lifespan. Um, because by 2004, I basically stopped doing it. Um, that was when the sort of, a lot of other labels had kind of grown around me, trust, kill, ferret, things like that. Um, I was on a different trip with respect to like needing to make you know, actual money to pay actual rent. Um, you know, hardcore was, it was never a path for me to incredible wealth <laughs> in that kind of thing. You know, could have I have applied myself in other ways and cashed out like some of my peers? Sure. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is, you know, I put out records I liked. I had a shitload of fun doing it. And for money, I really had other jobs um, through this whole thing. So the label really lasted for that amount of time. And it took me years to want to ever do it again. Yeah. And I want to get I mean, to, to the fact that you're doing it again, but I don't want to totally skip over all those awesome records you released in the nineties. Cause there's, there's, I mean, especially some of the bands that you put out who are kind of, and maybe it's fueled by a little bit of what you're doing now, but, uh, but it seems like a lot of them are kind of having a, a bit of a resurgence outburst seems to be like the most popular I've ever seen them be before, you know, yeah. like, um, they're re for some, like they, they were always funny because the new crop of kids are so don't dress like hardcore kids. There's no right. skins, yeah. there's no punks. It's just a bunch of like regular kids playing music and playing hardcore, but nobody is really kind of ascribing themselves to a uniform. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Outburst, they were probably one of the first sort of prototypes of bands that didn't give a fuck. You had, you know, two Filipino guys in the band, one preppy kid, and, you know, George will laugh, but it's like you had one fucking Queens Guido. Right. And like yeah. all these guys just got together because they went to high school together. They loved hardcore. They hung out in Astoria Park and knew all the guys from Leeway. They knew all the guys from Murphy's Law. They knew everybody from GB. They went, they dated a lot of their sisters or they did all these other things. So they were part and parcel of the scene. And they put together this demo. They got to be good friends at Raw Deal. Um, and when I heard the hard way through Anthony from Killing Time, I realized that that had to be the opener of where the wild things are. And, you know, but their resurgence is based on the fact that they're like very much label free in that way. Mm -hmm. Like they don't yeah. have like, we're not tough guy core. We're not this. We just play the music that we like and think what you want of us. And, you know. We have different styles. We're not particularly going to, you know, there's no coordinated <clears throat> anything. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, the the new kids seem to have embraced that. And Jojo, the drummer, has also been very proactive in befriending a lot of these bands. Like he's the guy who like Power Trip um, recorded a cover of, you know, of uh, of an opera song and they used to do play it live. And Jojo just emailed Riley one day out of the blue and they became friends. And ultimately Power Trip recorded that song in a real studio for the Outburst tribute record. And so, and that happened, you know, uh, two years ago before Riley's passing, obviously. And, you know, there's other bands that kind of have embraced the kind of outbursts sort of image nonchalance (laughs) in that way. And, and the credit is mostly due to Jojo just being cool and being there. Um, supporting other bands when when he hears other bands playing their covers, he'll actively go to see them and introduce That's very himself. Cool. Yeah, yeah, like he's, <laughs> he's like he's really and he's because he's into it. Like because again, none of us can believe that thirty years later anybody gives a shit. <laughs> yeah, is there any uh, like sour grapes? Like why does everybody give a fuck now? Like. <laughs> Um, no, it's just more of appreciation because like, that's all like all that stuff is like, there's at some point you have to give up kind of like (laughs) on the whole kind of like woulda, coulda, shoulda, because it's pointless. Right. And, you know, Jojo didn't have that because he's a much, he's a more positive person than I am. And it took me a while to kind of get over like certain things with, with, with blackout and things like that um, deals, I, you know, people I should have, shouldn't have trusted things like that, but like, it's all, it all happens for a reason. And I can't dwell on things I can't change. I just have to make sure I don't make the same mistakes and I have to kind of move forward in a way that says, Hey, what's the good I can take out of this. Yeah. And Jojo to his credit, always looks at the good that he can take out of things. And like, it's hilarious to us that, you know, really this band who's popular now did this. Cool. Or like this guy wore an outburst shirt. Like, How do they even know who we are? Right. And so like, that's great. And then, H2O is still playing a shitload of shows. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they, they just did a, a run with GB up and down the West coast. They plays, they still play tours all the time. Killing time. That's gotta be go. your biggest record ever. Right. I, I mean, that's. Oh, yeah. I, My, yeah. yeah. Exponentially. So yeah. 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 Um, oh, I, sorry. Before you go on, I, I, I apologize oh, yeah. for cutting you off. But oh, no uh, since, since you're going a little chronologically there, I want to make sure we don't skip over how much I enjoy Crawl Pappy. And what's funny is that I didn't even realize that it was a Blackout Records band. I had to go over to my shelf and pull out my beat up copy and look and go, holy shit, that is Blackout Records. Yeah. Tell me about Crawl Pappy. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I mean, I was still a fan of other kinds of music, right? And while I wasn't necessarily like, because when I started going to the scene, like there were bands like Damage and bands like Prong and bands yeah. like White Zombie that would still play the hardcore matinee. Right, right. Like, so like there was this rock element and when I saw Crow Pappy, it had Alan from who had just left Agnostic Front in it on bass, Alan Peters. Um, my friend Mark Newman from Sheer Terror was playing bass on the demo for the Pappies. And I really liked their songs, man. Like, and so, and I liked the fact that they weren't cookie cutter. They didn't sound like Sheer Terror. They didn't sound like Killing Time. They didn't sound like Breakdown. They were probably one foot in the adult band section yeah. and one foot yeah. in the hardcore band section. Yeah. Um, and they never necessarily got their due. Um, but they also didn't tour a lot. And they also kind of like, you know, um, they did they did OK in Europe for a couple of tours. Um, but, yeah, I really love that. I, 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 music wise, and they were the best hang. They used to hang out at this bar called Mona's, um, which had the best jukebox. And I would just go down there and like on an afternoon, I forget whether Mona's is on B or C or is on it B or C. I haven't been down there in so long. Um, but they, Mona's had the best jukebox in like 1990. Um, I got juke, I got a jukebox in my garage. So I'm a jukebox fan. So what, what, what was on the jukebox? It was just like they had all these old punk records and they had all like they had like the wire seven inch and they had like the gang of four and they had like, but they also had Motown. Yeah. And so we would just chug in coins and we'd listen to all this kind of stuff and suck down like, you know, 10 ciders to the point where I'd have to like, teeter around the East village for three hours before I got in my car, because otherwise I'd be driving fucking shit faced home. Um, but like, it was great, you know, and, and that's part of the value that this always brought to me was never just like, Hey, let's treat this as a business. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was always part of how do I extend this family of fucking weirdos that I'm at? Yeah. And it was Do you great. feel like it's so, it was all been successful? Like in in to any degree? 
have you felt like this is this has worked out? Um, success is different in, in people's heads, right? So yeah. if you look at it from the perspective of somebody's old Sicilian grandfather, right? Of which I know very well. Did you make yeah. money? Right. 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 It's all about the money. And cornerstone criteria of any friggin', you know, immigrant. Right. Um, I, I, I zig when I should have zagged a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was it that did I make business decisions and did I make decisions more with my heart than with my brain? Probably. So financially successful. Eh, we had a couple of years where we did okay. Right. Um, but I still paid all my workers the same as I paid myself. I call it punk rock welfare. And it was all the dudes that, and it was, and it was all friends of mine. Um, some of which had a very questionable work ethic that I paid anyway. Um, and you know, if I wanted to be the hard ass and run a friggin', you know, tough record label, could I have done things a little differently on that side? Yeah, sure. But it would remove would have removed some of the joy that I felt mm-hmm. um, while I was doing it, and I didn't feel some need to be liked in that way. That wasn't really the motivation. Again, the motivation was like. I have, so I will share. Mm-hmm. Um, and but as far as like personal experience, and as far as success, as far as you know, the whole YOLO thing, you yeah. know, to 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 be very millennial about it or whatever, or or Gen. I think that's Z. Z. I, don't, I think I think I'm technically a millennial, and I don't know if I've ever YOLO'd. So I think right, you never YOLO'd. <laughs> Um, no. <laughs> but like, you know, like, like I didn't need to take a picture of myself doing a yoga pose on the, on the, on the friggin' edge of the, of, of the Grand Canyon, um, or anything, but like we did some really cool fucking insane shit with all the bands and we had a great time doing it. And at the end of the day, when you look back at quote unquote success, is it about some shekel that you rub together and be like, ha ha, look, I'm dying with the most toys. Or you're like, do you want to die exhausted and say, I had a great fucking time, man. Yeah. I can say that for the most part, you know, I engineered blackout to give me, bring me joy. Um, in, in a world that very rarely gets to bring joy, which seems funny for bands that are yelling and screaming and talking about, you no. know, <laughs> angry shit, right? It's Not when you're talking to somebody like me who totally gets it. Position there, right? But I, I, I totally get it. Uh, some, some, some of that stuff you said is relatable to me and what I do with this and with the website and all the stuff that I have always done for years. Uh, does it make me money? No. Does it, um, doesn't cost me much either. Um, but I have a lot of fun doing it. I have a lot of fun having these conversations, getting to know people, uh, talking to people that have been doing stuff that I admire for. So like, that's, you know, it's, it's what you want out of it. That matters, dude. Like, like again, the money thing is like, 
I I could have worked at a friggin', you know, a, I, I could have worked at Google for more money. Like, you know, I could have, there's plenty of other things that I could have done. Like the music industry, you know, number one, a hardcore label, number two, like I probably picked two of the worst possible friggin' career paths for wealth generation that I, you know, thought I could have made a shitload more money fucking doing real estate. That sounds like I would want to fucking commit seppuku on a fucking daily basis. (laughs) Well, how about when, how about in the nineties where it seemed like, um, not, not all the nineties, but a lot of the nineties, it seemed like blackout. You kind of took a turn towards more melodic punk rock stuff. Was that a natural shift was that uh just was something that made business sense what was behind all that and how do you and, and more importantly like how do you look back on that now is that an era you're you like well, you don't like what no i mean hardcore comes in many flavors for me right i love seven seconds mm-hmm. i love discharge i love fucking suicidal tendencies i right. loved dri I also liked Dagnasty. And I like Can I say is about my favorite record that ever happened. Yeah. So so all of these things create this tapestry in my head of things that I like. What other people assume blackout should be about, um, you know, is is cool, but like I do this because I want to find things that I like. And sometimes there's things that say, hey you know, what would this be? And Kill Your Idols was, a, you know, I signed them in like 98, maybe-ish. Record came out in 99. Um, they were an extension of the scene that I originally loved, right? They had that slightly negative approachy element to them. They had melodic hardcore attached to them. But they also knew the crumb suckers and metal being from Long Island. They had that kind of underpinning as well. And I love that band, right? I still do. And they're cool dudes. Um, and so that was something that was very easy. I did this punk band from Philly who were friends with Killer Idols called Violent Society. I did one record Absolutely. by them. You know, and I, I should. I, I just want to point out that I am. Uh, I'm. I'm in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, right now, where CI Records was based, which had which put out like oh, most okay. of the other Violent Society records. So I'm super familiar with Violent Society. And anyway, go right. ahead. Sorry. And Pat was, you know, like adamantly anti-fascist and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like that about them. And but I also kind of look at took a turn, saying like, "Hey, you know, like." Uh, I, when one has sheer terror and killing time and breakdown on the label, do I need to sign a list of B list fucking imitators? Right. right. Like no one's ever going to write lyrics like Paul or Drago, for example, from, from, mm. from killing time. They're not going to do it. Um, so you have to find bands that you like for other reasons. And I went to, you know, I, I started just looking at other stuff and Gary from Kill Your Riders brought me, I think Gary from Kill Your Riders brought me, no, it was Tim Shaw from Ensign uh, brought me to Crime and Stereo, who had kind of a little bit more of an avant-garde kind of modern sound. 
Yeah. And this is slightly out of order. Um, there was a band with Nate from Ensign, which is how I got to know them, called The Fire Still Burns. And they're singing Alf. Um, they're, you know, kind of all relatively kind of famous Jersey band guys. Um, and I thought their EP was phenomenal. They just didn't play many shows outside of Jersey. So it was kind of pointless. But like the record sounds fucking great. Like, I love the songs on that record. Yeah, I'd I'm agree. Of, you know? And then there was a band from Phil, they're from PA called The Commercials. Sure. Yeah, Tony and Bavaria. Tony, yeah, I know Tony, all those guys. Very melodic. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that the guy, Andy, um, who was the primary vocalist in the band, had an amazing fucking voice. Yeah. I saw an opportunity for them that said they write great songs. He's got this voice. Like he could be, they could be like a Fueled by Ramen band. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that when, when people have a certain expectation of what the label is, I'm not necessarily sure they welcome the other sounds. And right. fans of Sheer Terror sure as fuck weren't fans of the commercials. <laughs> no, that's a pretty, those are pretty far apart. Yeah. yeah. To to most people. Yeah. Right. And to me, I saw it as a continuum in my brain. But I'm the only person that looks at the label as a whole and understand why I do that. Most people just say, do I like the record? Do I not? And, you know, if you were a Killing Time and Breakdown and Sheer Terror fan, you don't know, you don't like the later hour blackout stuff. Sorry. What can I tell you? Right. Um, you know, uh, you know, and people start their own labels for that reason, because they want to do their own derivative sounding shit. And I say to them, congratulations, go ahead, do what you want to do. Um, so those and there was this weird confluence of putting out those records. And I got the commercials on some warp tour dates. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, there was some there was some work put in. I did videos for both bands for for well, like, uh, I, like I said, I'm from central Pennsylvania here. So the commercials are from I think Mechanicsburg or Carlisle or something. So yeah, and, mostly Harrisburg, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. So and uh, some of those guys are doing uh doing a band with Dave Smalley now called Don't Sleep. But anyway, like you know, they were they were pretty uh ingrained in in the hardcore scene in central Pennsylvania, despite playing a band that was uh, like, you know, melodic, I don't know what you call it, rock punk, whatever, pop punk, maybe, um, emo. Um, but so, so like, so I, I understand the ties, you know, they're, they're there, whether people hear them or not there, you know, those, those were real right. guys. Right. And I, I really like them and I put a lot of work into them. Now this happened at the same time where, you know, I'm going to put my music industry hat on and I'm going to say where the democratization of distribution happened. And, you know, that would be your Napster. Right. So people didn't have to buy records anymore. And there was a time, especially kind of in the early 2000s, where the shit hit the fan, dude. Like, I used to be able to sell five, 10,000 of anything that I put out. Anything. Mm -hmm. That went down precipitously. 
Um, and it was part of the fact that there was a lot of other labels coming up that were doing more than I was. Trust Kill, Ferret, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and who I have incredible respect for. And it was their time, you know. Um, but people were downloading this music. They weren't necessarily buying it and supporting the bands um, if they did it. Um, and it was before, way obviously way before streaming. And, you know, people weren't buying vinyl anymore either, right? There was no support for the, for the bands. Yeah, it's total so, CD era. Maybe. You're at the end of it, too. It was the it was it was it was the end it was it was the end of the indie CD era. Major labels took another couple of years before they crapped out on the CD because they were forcing the issue, right? Um, and they also were much better at anti-piracy than some little indie label was. Right. And so there was a point where the label just became financially unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And that culminated also with a partnership that I had with a recording studio that went very heavily south um, due to, I have to be careful what I say, but basically attempts at fraud by the studio owner to basically take over the label, which it ended kind of badly for him. Um, but you know, ultimately it put such a bad taste in my mouth that I put everything up on iTunes when iTunes came out and I walked away from the label. Fuck this. Don't care. I'm done. I may have spent 15 minutes a year doing accounting and paying H2O and paying some of the bands that were recouped out of their digital royalties that were coming in. But I wanted to, to talk about, I didn't want to talk about blackout. I didn't want to think about blackout. It was in the, in, it was in the rear view. And I spent my time focusing on my other job in the music industry. And that's really kind of what happened. And so I didn't do jack shit for a number of years. Yeah. Well, it seems like looking at the way the, the label ended that first time around it seems like the last record was the barricade record is that something you had anything to do with i did a bunch of shit with creep um to okay. distribute yeah, yeah, yeah um because i wasn't interested in doing anr anymore and i just figured i could kind of like press and distribute other people's records but pressing and distributing other people's records means that you could actually continue to keep those records in press mm. and you know as money got tighter we were not necessarily able to keep all the records we needed to impress including the h2o right um you know uh so that that just kind of you know that that just made me say you know what fuck this and there was a certain time where I think everybody in those early 2000s who were part of that first couple of generations of hardcore kind of walked away. Yeah. Like, Ichua was on Epitaph and MCA doing their own thing. Um, Sheer Terror had broken up, you know, at the time. 
Killing Time wasn't doing shit. Um, you know, Crime and Stereo went to Bridge Nine to do that record. Um, the, I guess first they went to Nitro and that didn't work out for them, so they went to Bridge Nine. And then there was just a couple of other things that, that happened. So it seemed like that first wave kind of died in ugly death in a weird way. And so everybody was kind of just moving on from that. You know, it's uh, <coughs> it was a lyric in the Minor Threat song. Everybody hit their adult crash. I think that was everybody's adult crash. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair to say. And to me, that's like before the reunion thing started in hardcore. Like, sure, there would be one here and there. But that's like, we weren't doing that yet. We weren't doing the reunion show. The big, like, reunion, we're back forever. That wasn't happening yet. The reunion thing really happened because Paul got the itch to always felt that it ended wrong with the other guys. And he had enough time apart for them where his friendship with those guys mattered. Um and I had a friend who was a videographer, high kind of a high-end videographer, and he agreed to help me film it. So I put the two shows at CBGB's together, the wake and the funeral. Um, I got the Eric from Creep to actually record the audio and mix it. Mm-hmm. And then um, a bunch of people took, uh, my friend Kevin got a bunch of people to film it. Um, you know, and uh, we did the documentary for Sheer Terror, um, which I think, you know, and then, you know, I edited the documentary for like six, eight months, but I put it out on Thorpe, um, be, you know, the DVD, because yeah. I still wanted no part of physical product. And I wasn't going to make any personal investment in physical product. So Andy uh, put it out on Thorpe. Um, and then I kept the digital rights for doing whatever with it at some point. Um, and so, you know, that's the way that that came out. And it turned out really well, you know, and people really, liked it and appreciated it at the time. And I think it was a very comprehensive snapshot of sheer terror as people, as a band, understanding kind of where they come from, you know, especially understanding Paul is not just this kind of curmudgeonly lout that people might expect him to be, um, that there is a high degree of intelligence and emotionalism behind his lyrics um, and what people think they may know about him is untrue um, because he's a much deeper of a human being than his sort of stage persona might indicate. Right, right. But that's for anybody, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, let's transition from that talk about sheer terror to what actually got me to reach out and to set this up to talk to you because you've got three new sheer terror reissues either just dropped or about to drop what's happened. Tell me, so just start me from the whole beginning with this shirt or with the whole blackout reissue thing. Tell me why it started, why you're back 
and what's going on. So blackout got restarted because again, I always was not at that. I felt that things were undone and with the vinyl craze, it seems like all these kids were like, you know, part of it was seeing how outburst was getting all the love that they were getting. So the first thing that we did, the first thing I did in 2016 was I did a sheer terror box set. Mm. So um, it was pre-order only. Um, and it was all the sheer terror, the five blackout sheer terror records. Yeah. Um, which also included uh, love songs for the unloved, the demos called unheard unloved. And, but there was a finite number of those pressed. And then we kind of just put it on the shelf, you know, um, for whatever reason, the guys in the band just didn't want to sell it anymore. They just wanted to have the box set available for one shot, be done, collect their money and be done with it. Um, but I had a great time designing the sheer terror box. I had a great time, like with the patch and the posters and the booklets and all that stuff. Cause I, I still look for design and, so, and I've never designed a box before. So this was like, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was fun and it made money. And that was like the first project that I think ever made money for everybody. <laughs> I mean, realistically, I mean, H2O made money and a couple other things didn't actually make money at the time, but like it was the, it was like, it was immediately financially successful, whereas everything else was dribs and drabs. And it felt good to have that be rewarded um, with some immediate success um, financially, especially after going through what I did for, for so many years. Right. And I think the band felt rewarded as well. Um, so that was good. Um, and then about a year and a half later, I said, outburst, let's do outburst. So I did the miles to go plus the demo on the LP. And I also did a compilation of old, newer bands like Crime Watch and Power Trip and Higher Power, um, all doing outburst covers um, called Hot Shit Attitude. And, you know, the, the Power Trip single got a lot of spins on Spotify. Um, it got added to Sirius XM radio. Um, so that was another kind of help in the, another feather in the outburst cap, mm -hmm. if you will. Riley was a big help there. Um, and the outburst sold pretty well. That was a pre-order that we did, um, for the most part. And then probably because I was working on other jobs, I didn't really focus on this. And then I said, you know what, let's kind of like kick this up another notch. And I was able to like use, I saved a couple extra bucks. So I said, let me, let's repress those sheer terror records that haven't seen the light of day now in seven years. Right. Um, so right now, um, the three sheer terror records that are coming out are um, Thanks for Nothing. Uh, unheard, unloved, which is the demos, and then No Grounds for Pity, which are the early sheer terror demos. Um, we have, uh, sorry, no, I always get confused with the cadence of the releases. 
the next two sheer terror releases are going to be um the next there's one more sheer terror record that has to come out which is the which is the demos record um paul wanted to change the cover on it so it went into production a little bit later so that sheer terror record will be after so we have these these sheer terror records coming out just can't hate enough will have its own special edition a little bit further down the road and it's going to be kind of a special unveiling um so I'm going to tease that out, but I'm not going to be specific about it. And, you know, that'll be the start of saying, hey, we're also going to be doing all, all the Kill Your Idols records back in print literally after 15 years, 20 years. Yeah. Um, and that's the live record that was that's on Creep with a new cover. Um, uh an expanded edition of uh, this is just the beginning and an expanded edition of uh, um, no gimmicks needed. We're going to have those. Then we're going to do likely the punk rock jukebox uh, compilations, like small pressings of those because mm-hmm. don't notoriously don't do as well as regular records, but you know, the punk rock jukebox series is like still like it's got some great songs on it. Like, right. I don't know if people know it or not, but like there's a song called I'm Against It, which is a Ramon song, which is Marky Ramon's on Marky Ramon on drums, Mark Newman from Sheer Terror on guitar, Chicky from Sheer Terror on bass and Lars and Tim from Rancid on vocals. Hmm. I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Um and there's like a bunch of other like super cool tracks. And then all of it really is based on kind of demand on what people, I think people would want to hear. Right. Um, and then, you know, who knows, maybe I'll start releasing, you know, maybe I'll find a couple of bands that I really love and want to do them. Um, it's a little scary <laughs> to think about doing a new band, especially as an old guy who doesn't really go to that many shows anymore. But um, I think that, you know, given my experience, um, there's a lot of things that I, a lot of pitfalls that I don't think I would run into now that I did when I was a a kid kind of using the Braille method to feel his way through the business. (laughs) Well, the one of the, one of the things I was going to ask you about is, are you going to release new records? don't get me wrong. I think the reissue stuff is awesome. I need to get them all starting. You know, which one I need to start with though. And uh, I was just looking over here at it on the other side of the screen. I wanted to bring it up earlier and I totally forgot is all guns bullside, which no bullshit right. is that one of my our house came out as well. We did those. Two yeah. The, the two great records, but all got all guns poolside is legitimately one of my favorite hardcore records ever. So just oh, that band cool. Redemption 87 was so uh, to me, so underrated. So I think it's super cool that you got that, but I was going to ask you about the, if you do new bands to your credit uh, about finding newer bands to do it, you did a great job with that outburst cover comp. So if you just seem to follow that method, I think, you, <laughs> I think you can trust yourself because uh, you know, you seem to kill up with that one. Yeah, I mean, and that was kind of just like saying like, hey, who's popular? Would they want to do an opera song? And it was it was like it was very much like where the wild things are. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know. 
with working with new bands, there's two ways that they react. One is blackout, you know, and it's like, oh, an old fuddy-duddy label right. trying to be cool again. Right. And I'm well aware that that could happen because kids are kids and that shit happens. Right. Or it's like, oh, that's fucking awesome. Like you're coming back. And most of the bands, all the bands who participate in the Apis record were the latter. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, you can always tell when somebody's iffy about shit because, yeah, we'll call you. You know, right, right. Right? you're not going to call. It's fine. You know, um, but. Like, that's the, really the way that it is. So, you know, I'm very well aware that Flat Spot and Triple B are the new hotness. Right. And, you know, I'm not going to I don't want to step on anybody's toes with respect to other bands. Like, I'm not poaching other bands. I don't think that that's the right thing to do. Um, You know, they're doing a lot of great stuff. Um, So I just have to figure out kind of who do I want to make an investment in? And who do I, who do I want to see grow? Like when I first did H2O, man, Toby was still sick of it all as roadie. And I drove them to their first show. I think it was like at some upstairs club in Philly where there was maybe 20 people there. And I put Todd friends drums in the back of my car and drove them down there. Like (laughs) there was, it was literally a club was probably the size of my fucking living room. Right. And like to watch them go from a room like that and progress to, you know, being kind of a junior headliner on the warp tour a year and a half later and opening for the Boston's and opening for this band and opening for that and doing this tour and doing that tour, you know, and watching, watching that there's a real sense of reward that I get from saying that, like I helped be the engine behind this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm not in the band. I'm not a fucking rock star. Right. That's not my job. It's not my role. My my role is a thankless, invisible job of fucking being the <laughs> being the scapegoat sometimes and sometimes <laughs> being the hero. Right. Yeah. That's my job. And you All have the to risk, wear- no reward. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. And, you know, it's not always easy. People don't always agree on everything. People don't always agree on philosophy. Um, or what a release should look like or anything like that. So, you know, it's always, it's always, it's always interesting. Yeah. So uh, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what the, we'll see what the future brings. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm super stoked on what you're doing. I'm glad to see these things coming back in the print. I think it's super cool. Uh, I'm buying more records now than ever. So as the whole room, you can't see the whole room, but the whole, there's more shelves behind me, you know? So, uh, so I'm excited for it. Uh, one last thing I really wanted to ask you about that I had on my list, and that is how essential is the exclamation point in the name Blackout Records? It always feels like it should be there. Yeah. I don't know why. Because like I know Lookout had it too, and I don't know why. But it was always there, even when it was like the first iteration of the logo, like in, in 89. Like, I yeah. don't know. I don't know why it just felt like 
that was a it's more like a visual design element than it is kind of like an inflection for like the way it should be pronounced. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I really wanted to do shit, I would go the motorhead way and put umlauts over all the, all the vowels. Right. <laughs> right. Right. That's kind of the, uh, the short story. If you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're back at it. I'm glad to see you're doing it again. What is it? 35 years now. And, uh, Still at it, still releasing classic, literally classic records, re-releasing some of them, but it's great. It's awesome. Thank you, Bill, for your contribution to all this, because I, I don't, you know, we talk a little bit about how, you know, you don't get a lot of the uh, the forward facing um, attention or credit, but you certainly deserve it for all the stuff that you've put out there in the world, whether you want it or not. Thanks for your contribution to this whole thing that we're into. That was my conversation with Bill Wilson of Blackout Records. The song you just heard was the Sheer Terror classic, Here to Stay. If you want more Sheer Terror, check out the three reissues dropping very soon on Blackout Records. And of course, as we discussed, keep your eye out for more. Uh, There's already been a few out there, and now it seems like the floodgates have opened and we're getting treated to many more. Thanks to Bill and for his uh, his willingness to get back in the ring and uh, reissue these great classic hardcore records. 
That's Thanks for Nothing, Unheard, Unloved, and Old, New, Borrowed, and Blue. Available now through Blackout Records. Re-released, better than ever. Sounding great, looking better. That's uh, nobody, nobody from back then is looking better, but the records are. All right, so that's, that's a reason to check them out. That's a reason to get an updated version of these classics. Uh, plenty of other awesome stuff on that roster, including Killing Time, Dead Guy, Kill Your Idols, Breakdown, H2O, Sheer Terror, Redemption 87, and the list goes on and on and on as we discussed. But just one more reiteration. Great record label. Thanks for your time, Bill. Thanks for your time, listener, whoever you are, whatever your name is. But I want to thank you and ask you for more time simultaneously. Go to gettingitout.net. Check out what's going on there. Not sure what it'll be this week. Kind of back in the swing of things. It's the beginning of a new month as well as the end of July. Get your billing in. All right. Don't make me send an extra email. You office people know. End of month. Busy business. Get, get busy with it is what somebody would suggest you to do. Close them out. All right. We need to shut the books. We need to act like it's not the end of every single other month. Every month has an end, and we act like it's a fire drill every time, no matter what business you're in. Wait till you get to the end of the year. Crazy business. Anyway, this is the end of the episode. And of course, I got to end it with one more song, one more Blackout Records song. And I believe it's a song that I've played here on this podcast before. Definitely a band I've showcased here before. And it's Kill Your Idols, and it's Can't Take It Away. And it's one of their classic tracks, and you know where it comes from blackout records and you know there's a new reissue on the way and you know there's three of them so get excited but first relax don't wait no you don't you don't want to relax you want to get hyped up and check out this classic kill your writers track can't take it away thank you for listening bye-bye